Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. How many of you are excited to see 2018 leave? Let's show of hands. Okay, cool. Awesome. How many of you more excited to see 2019 come? Let's see that. Okay, cool. Well, a lot of times we get a new year or a new start on old habits. And this year we're going to say, you know what, life is going to be different for us. And not so much of just mustering up the willpower to try to create New Year's resolutions that all die out by February, but to really adopt it, a, a spirit-empowered practice of life. I call it what we call a rule of life. And one of those big parts of that starts this next Sunday as we start a series called Feel Free, and we're going to go into a seven-day fast. And as Pastor Chad said, I just want to encourage you, in this seven-day fast, we're going to be partnering with prayer. And Jesus said in Matthew 5 and 6, when you pray, when you give, when you fast. There is a threefold cord that is not easily broken, the scripture said. And we're going to be coupling that with all night prayer coming up on the sixth day of the fast, which is uh, January 11th from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. And it's just going to be a great, great week. I just want to encourage you. I want to show you a quick video because throughout the whole month, we have people within our community that are going to be writing daily blogs for you to encourage you on the fast and during the prayer. And so many of you ask each and every week, well, where is that? So many of you, maybe you ask on Monday morning, I miss Sunday. How can I follow up on the message? Well, we have a Monday morning commentary every single Monday morning that comes out. And you'll see it right here. If you'll play that quick video, if you just go to our website, click on media. Once you click on media, go down to blog. Once you hit blog, they're going to be all in format in front of you. The most recent one you click. And that one there is clicked. And then you see the Monday morning commentary before you. Now, each and every day... During the 21 days of prayer, we're going to be posting from this community somebody else who is writing about the subject of prayer. And so we encourage you, make sure you follow us on the website. Of course, you can keep up with it on social media as well. We're going to be doing live prayer each day at noon. So if you're on a lunch break, we're going to be going live on Instagram for you to ask questions of prayer and for you to also give prayer requests. And we're going to pray together uh, as we really approach and align ourselves with what God wants to do. How many are you excited for 2019? I'm super, super excited. I want you if, you, if you have your Bible, to go into the book of Job, if you're not there already. As you came in today, if you didn't receive a message card, you can raise your hand right quick. And anybody not receive a message card, I see a few hands. And there are ushers there in the back that will serve you. Just keep your hand up for a few moments, and uh, they would be more than glad to serve you today. Those that are guests, thanks for being with us today. As you turn in the book of Job, some of you are saying, you know what, where is Job? Well, if you go to your Old Testament... And you find the book of Psalms. You're just going to find Job right before the book of Psalms. You're very, very close. And I want to preach to you a message today that I'm entitling, How Big Is Your God? How Big Is Your God? A.W. Tozer, in his great work called The Knowledge of the Holy, he said that whatever comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He said, our worship is as high or as low as the worshiper entertains thoughts about God. The essence of idolatry is not just replacing God with a new thought or an idea or an addiction or something that is substituted for God, but it's also the essence of idolatry to entertain thoughts about God that are not worthy of who He is, that are base, that are low. And see, what I want to propose to us today is that almost all of our spiritual problems 
Problems like doubt, problems like apathy, problems like complacency, problems like unhappiness or insecurity. I would propose to us today that they all come from a view of God that is too small. A view of God that is minute. See, as Americans, we prefer a God who is small. We prefer a God we can manage. We prefer a God we can predict. We prefer a God we can control. And that, that kind of God feels safe to us. He feels like he almost insulates us. We can understand him. We can explain him. We can talk about him in well-defined terms. He doesn't embarrass us. He doesn't confuse us. He doesn't contradict us. And he doesn't make us mad. But that simply is just not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the opposite of small and manageable. The God of the Bible is the opposite of one who is understandable. He's big, but he's not just big. He's bigger than big. He's bigger than all the words that we can use in the English language to say big. He defies our abilities to categorize him. He defies our abilities to describe him. Most Americans, and myself included, we want a God who is only slightly bigger and a slightly smarter version of us. We want to make God in our image rather than understanding he made us in his image. But the God of the Bible, church, is something altogether different from who we are. And here's the irony. Only a God like that, only a God like the God of the Bible is capable of explaining life's mysteries. Only a God like that is capable of giving us a real sense of purpose in the world. And only a God like that can ignite our passions in life. It's like the British philosopher Evelyn Underhill, she famously quoted, she said, a God that's small enough to be understood will never be big enough to be worshiped. A God that's small enough to be understood will never be big enough to be worshiped. So you today have to choose. Do you want a God who, can, who you can understand and you can bring to well-defined terms? Or do you want a God who is larger than what you can understand but is able to sustain you through life's tragedies and life's difficulties? You see, Solomon, the greatest, one of the wisest men that ever lived, he called this the fear of God. And he said the fear of God is the necessary component that is necessary for every relationship with God. He would say in Proverbs 1 and 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. You know what that means? That verse means that without a trembling awe before the majesty of God, we'll never really know God. We'll never really walk with God and we'll never be able to trust God until we have a fear, a healthy fear of the majesty of Almighty God. You all know as a pastor, I tried to lead in transparency. If you've been around Dwelling Place for any length of time, you know that I've tried to be honest with you about the struggles I face, particularly in my own faith. And to say that you follow Jesus for any decade and not have a crisis of faith is just not true. There are just times you go through dark nights of the soul. There's just times you go through crisis of faith. And I know in my own life, for many years, this is the skip, the step that I skipped in my faith, if you will. Because I had this belief, you know, as a person who is a thinker and very analytical, I had this belief and problem with belief through different seasons of my life. I had hard questions that, that I didn't really have good answers for. Like, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there so much suffering in the world? I mean, I get that God can use pain for good purposes, right? I get that God can do that. But what possible good could God bring out of the Holocaust? What good could God bring out of the the demolition of 7 million Jews? Or how does the concept of hell align with the view of a loving God? How does that align? This is a great question. Or how about this one? If Christianity is true and there's 7.2 billion people on the earth, why do so few people, relatively speaking, believe it? 
If it's true, why do so few people believe it? And why isn't God doing more about it to get people saved? Have you never asked this question before? Like, why would God not send a nine foot, 900 foot angel to land on the rotunda of the Capitol building and preach the gospel? That's way more effective than putting his spirit on a six one man who's 175 pounds who preaches in one city. That's way more effective. Why would God not do that? Why would God not share the gospel in ways like that? These are great questions. I never forget a couple of summers ago I was in Israel and we went over to Bethlehem and we were working with those who were, of course, in a 99.9% dominated area, Muslim controlled area. And there was a young girl that was a part of our group. Her dad had become an uh, alumni of ORU and she went to her, her dad. She was like eight or nine years old and she'd been working all week in a, a group of Syrian refugees. And she went over to her dad. I never forget. She asked the question. She said, dad, if God loves these people so much, why doesn't he fix all of this? Why does he fix all of this refugee issue? And her dad looks at him in the standard pastor to answer, and he said, he is, sweetheart. He's using us to fix it. He's using us to minister to these. But she wasn't satisfied with that answer at all, and she pressed back, and she said, but why doesn't God do something about it himself? Why doesn't he do it himself, not believers himself? I think that's a fair question. That's a fair question of the faith. Why not send the, amel, the, the army of angels that we read about in the Old Testament? They're everywhere. Armies of angels show up to help the nation of Israel. Why couldn't he make the war in Syria go away? Why couldn't he just send a whole platoon of angels? Maybe you, you've had some questions like this before. If you're honest with yourself, you've had these questions many times before. Many times before. The crisis of faith questions. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but in my struggle, I've thought, you know what? You know, the fact that I can't understand God or the fact that I can't explain these things, what it must mean is that maybe God doesn't even exist. Well, eventually for me, when Christ saved me, I came to believe because I became genuinely convinced that there was really no other explanation in life to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus other than the fact that he was who he said he was. If he died the way he said he was going to die and he rose the way he said he was going to raise and on the 40th day he ascended to the Father, then I must believe he is who he said he is. Convinced. But even after coming to that conviction, I don't know about you, but for me, I've wrestled in seasons of my life, maybe you have too, I know I've pastored people this way, that even though you now believe God exists, you have a trouble really loving God. Because how could you love a God and feel close to a God who so confuses you? Or how could you love a God who bewilders you so much? You know, you know, for me, I, I don't know about you, but I've been in dry seasons where I said, God, I want to love you. I know other people who seem to love you. I know one, at least one woman in every church I've ever pastored who tear, tears up every time she talks about God's grace. Have you ever met that woman? And when you see her, you wish you teared up every time you talked about God's grace. Why am I not the person who is so emotionally moved every time I mention that Jesus died? Why doesn't always shatter my heart into a million pieces and cause me to fall down in worship? I, I had this woman at our last church who did it every time she spoke of God's grace. Now, for me, I, I wanted to be like that. I knew how to fake it. I know how to shake my head real good, right, and grunt. You know, give them the, the spiritual grunt. <clears throat> you know, you can give those. Some of you say, I, I've seen you do that with me. Yeah, I have done that with you. Um, <laughs> fake it a few times, but but I've acted the part. Why do my emotions not stay so attached like everybody else's emotions? I've come to see that one of my primary problems in all of this was I just had a conception of God that was too small. A conception of God that was too finite. I thought of God as a slightly bigger, slightly smarter version of me, a God that I should be able to easily understand and explain. And quite honestly, I would just 
saying in my subconscious, God, if you would just take time to explain yourself to me, then I could really believe you. God, just explain yourself. But that's absolutely not the God of the Bible. That is not the God of the scriptures. And that conception of God is just not able to sustain faith. You got to understand that. It's only by grappling with the size of God that I can develop the real ability to believe in God, to really grapple with who he is. So in this last message of 2018, what I would like to do for the moments we have together is unpack the experience of the man in the Bible who had more questions for God than anyone else that's ever lived on the planet. More questions for God than I guarantee you and I have ever asked God. In fact, his name now in church history has become synonymous with confusion. His name has been synonymous with doubt. His name was, of course, Job. We're going to be in chapter 38 if you want to turn there with me. But what I must do, because it's such a long book, is I must catch you up for the first 37 chapters. Can I do that in about two and a half minutes? Follow with me. Two and a half minutes, 37 chapters. First, we don't know about much about Job. We really don't know much about him at all. The Bible says in Job 1 and 1, he is said to be from the country or city of Uz. Uz, U-Z. Now, where is Uz? Scholars have no idea where Uz is. They assume you have to follow the yellow brick road to get there, okay? There's no, no ability for us to know where Uz is. Furthermore, we don't know what time period Job lives in. If you're a scholar of the Bible, you probably know this, that the first book of the Old Testament ever written was the book of Job. It's the oldest book that we have. It precedes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah, what Moses wrote. But we don't know what time period that Job lived in. We know he's not an Israelite because his name is not Hebrew. Job is not a Hebrew name. But this lack of detail, scholars say, is very intentional because the author of Job does not want you to get fixated on Job's particular historical identity. He wants you to focus on the questions that Job raises because they're questions you will raise. He wants you to get understand the questions of humanity that's unable to grab and grapple with the true size of God, but the, the questions that are universal and questions that we all ask, questions that you've asked at some point in your journey. If you look at Job 1 and 1, the Bible says that Job was a blameless, upright man. That is a Hebrew, Hebrew way of saying he was a really swell guy. It means that he helped out little old ladies across the street. He always ate his vegetables. He turned in his library books on time. He read every word of the terms and conditions every time his app re-updated on his iPhone. He went all the way to the bottom. He clicked agree every time. He was a swell guy. But then right after his brief introduction, we get this introduction to this blameless upright man. We get whisked off to heaven. And here we go as readers into heaven and God is apparently having a staff meeting and God, I don't know if you know this or not, has a staff meeting, not only with the angels, but he lets a, a character in there called Satan. It's, his name really is Satan. Did you know this in Hebrew? It means accuser. We say Satan, but it's Satan. And so Satan comes into the presence of God and he's known as a liar. He's known as deceiver. He's known as accuser. He's known as prosecutor. And the Satan raises a critical challenge. He says to God, he says, God Almighty, you know the only reason people serve you is because that's in their own self-interest. You know that, right, God? Like they serve you because you give them stuff. And so let them suffer and they'll give you up. And Satan says to God, he says, hey, you let this man suffer. Let somebody suffer and they'll drop you like a bad habit. So God says, all right, Job, all right, I'll take it. I want you, or uh, Satan, I want you to go to Job. He's a blameless, upright man. And I want you to take everything in his life, everything that he loves. And then I want you to see that he values me for me. Now, we're, here we are. We're jumping off the theological deep end. Ready? Okay. So he looks at Job 
And Satan now goes and has access and freedom to take everything from this upright man. For the next two chapters, that's what we see happens. Satan takes everything from Job. Interestingly enough, or maybe disturbingly enough, Satan doesn't touch his wife. Now, I'm not sure what that means, okay? Not sure that, I, it's almost like you can hear another demon saying to Satan, hey, you forgot to take out Job's wife. And the demon's like, no, leave her, she's worse. You know, and she turns out to be pretty cranky. She turns out to be pretty cranky. She tells him to curse God and die, okay? So the demons took everything but his wife. That's intentional. At this point in the narrative, I'm just kidding, ladies. At this point in the narrative, you should be asking, wait, what? Why in the world would God allow this? If you're not asking that, then you're not being honest and you're reading. Why would God allow this? And then we'd expect the rest of the book, we got a lot of chapters there to answer that question, but that's not what we get. Now let's go to chapter three, enter Job's friends. Job has three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Zophar, the Nemiathite, and the shortest man in the Bible, his name was Bildad, the Shuhite. Get it? Shuhite. <laughs> yeah, cool. Awesome. Yeah, cool. Yeah, write that one down. Bible trivia at its best. These men, these three, they try to explain Job and explain Job's suffering by using the best of ancient wisdom. So they do what maybe some of your friends have done. For what it's worth, can I just be honest here real quick before we beat the tar out of his friends? They're pretty decent friends. They're decent friends. What do you mean? They're using the best of ancient wisdom and at least they have the fortitude to sit with, with Job and his misery. They try to comfort him. They cry with him. They weep with him. But basically, here's what they say to Job. They say, look, Job, we know God is just. We know he never does anything wrong and we know everything happens for a reason. So the fact that you're suffering means that there is a reason that God's doing this to you. Job, don't you understand? God is just. He's sovereign. So listen, understand, God's paying you back, Job. That's all he's doing. So here's what I need you to do, Job. I need you to really get introspective and really look within and see what sin is in your life. Like what's really taking place in your life? Well, Job pushes back and he looks at his friends and he says, that's just not true. He said, I'm not a sinless man. I'm not a perfect man, but I'm gonna tell you something. I'm innocent of anything that would warrant this kind of destruction. I'm innocent of anything that would warrant this kind of suffering. And his friends, they hold the line. The friends of Job look back at him and said, look, Job, there has to be something. You've done something wrong. You've sinned in some way. God is just. Everything happens for a reason. So think hard, Job. What is it that you did wrong? This goes on for 37 chapters. 37 chapters of three men telling a one man of what he's really done wrong to deserve the suffering he's experienced. Finally, Job's exasperated. He's out of energy. He says, listen, guys, you're wrong. And the more you talk, the worse I feel. Your talking is not helping me, okay? Your talking's not helping me. You talk more, it makes it worse. It reminds me of the story of the man who gets pulled over and he gets pulled over. His wife is in the passenger seat and the, the officer says, hey, sir, did you know how fast you were going? He said, sir, I'm sorry, officer. I didn't know how fast I was going at all. And the wife looks over and says, no, he knew exactly how fast he was going. He told me a few miles back. And he said, well, he said, uh, sir, did you know that your tail light was out? And he said, no, I, I, didn't know my, I didn't know my tail light was out. And his wife said, no, he's known it for months. I've been on him for the last few months to get his tail light fixed. I've been telling him over and over again. He said, said sir, did you know, why, why are you not wearing your seatbelt? Did you not wear your seatbelt? And he said, no, nah, Mr. Officer, I took it off when you were approaching the car. And she said, you did not. You never wear your seatbelt. You never wear your seatbelt. And finally, the officer looks at the woman and says, woman, does he always treat you like this? And she says, Mr. Officer, he only does when he's drunk. He only does when he's drunk. Um, in other words, stop talking, wife. That's what Job is saying. Shut up, friends. Stop talking. The more you talk, the worse it makes it. 
The more you try to explain from the ancient wisdom, the worse it's making. Ding, 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 we've got a point. So Job now is exhausted from the wisdom of his friends and they leave one by one and Job sits there totally confused, which gives us the point of the book of Job. Are you ready? The wisdom of all the ancients has been spent, yet the mystery of suffering remains. It remains. All the wisdom has been exasperated and yet suffering and its causes and its mystery, it remains. Well, finally, we've got some good news because in chapter 38, God shows up. Woo! He comes in a whirlwind. You're thinking, this is going to be great. Job thinks God's going to give him all the answers. He thinks finally these friends that are discontented and just depressing, they've gotten out of my life. Now God shows up and he is going to at last give me some answers. But no, God shows up and guess what God does? Instead of giving him answers, he asks Job questions. 64 of them in three chapters. Job shows up, or God shows up in Job's life, and he says, all right, Job, have a seat. You ready for a question? Questionnaire, a little filled out. And he says things like this. I don't want to pull or tell you to go each one, but if you want to read chapter 38 and 39, you'll get 64 questions in there. Let me just give you a few of them. He says, Job, were you around when I shaped the earth? Were you around? Didn't think so. Um, what were you doing, Job, when I put the constellations of the galaxies together? Uh, while we're at it, Job, where do storms come from? And uh, can you predict when they're coming? Can you predict when the next storm is coming? And then there's some really random odd questions. Okay, I get those questions, but these odd questions I don't get, like this one, Job 39, verse 1. Job, do you know how much do you how much do you know about the reproduction habits of goats? Job, do you know anything about the reproduction habits of goats? Or how about this one, Job 38, 13. Why are ostriches so ugly? That's what God asked him. He says, hey, hey, Job, why are ostriches so ugly? And Job, can you explain grape nuts? Job, they're neither grape nor nuts. Can you explain that? Okay, just kidding on that one. But that not that weird? Grape nuts? Not grape or nuts. But um, that one's not in there. I inserted that one. But as you're reading, you kind of get to this place. You're like, I get the big questions, but why all these little questions? Well, the point is to show perspective. The point is to show perspective. Job, if you can't even fathom all the mystery behind natural things, are you in a place to understand my eternal purposes in your life? If you can't understand little things like constellations, can you really understand eternal things like what I'm doing in your heart? Wow, come on. If you can't even understand why ostriches are so ugly, you really think you're in a position to put me in court and to judge what I'm doing in your life, you see the assumption that Job and all his friends are working off of is that they know enough about the world to understand and analyze God's ways. But actually God says, your perspective on the world is pretty puny. Your perspective on the world is pretty finite. Mine is huge. You don't even understand simple things like constellation creation or ostrich ugliness. And see, if you don't understand the mystery behind finite things like this, do you think you're really in a place, Job, to hold court on the infinite God? like me. You see, Job, to understand infinite justice, you need to have an infinite perspective. If you're going to understand infinite justice, you've got to have an infinite perspective. And then in chapter four, God says, hey, while we're at it, Job, would you really like to run the world for a day? Job, you want to run the world? You really want to punish every little act of injustice? That's what you want to do? You want to punish every act? Oh, do you know how many different things, Job, are happening in the world at one time and how many things are interconnected? It's like the butterfly effect. 
Reminds me of that scene from Russo Almighty where God lets the shining star of theological brilliance named Jim Carrey play the part of God. You remember this? Remember his first theological crisis? He becomes God and he gets on the computer and he has to take and answer everybody's prayer requests in the world at one time. And they're popping up so fast. And if he answers this prayer this way, it would affect that person that way. And that person's praying for the opposite of what this person's praying. And that one would connect that person and it would change that person. And he's trying to figure out how to answer all the prayer requests at one time. And how do we do this? And this wisdom and this theological brilliance, it, it reminds me in chapter 40. And at the end of chapter 40, basically God says to Job, he says, ah, Job, this is quite a bit more complicated than you thought, isn't it, little man? A little complicated, isn't it, Job? And then the book ends. Book ends. Oh, oh, wait. Something happens in the last chapter, doesn't it? In the last chapter, God ends up restoring everything to Job seven times. Sevenfold blessing. But we never really get the satisfying answers to the question of why it all happened in the first place. And neither did Job. He never got the answer. All we get is more questions, but those questions give us five crucial points about the size of God. I want to give it to you today. Here is the size of God. Number one, his power is sovereign. His power is sovereign. Your power, Job could say, is sovereign. We know what that means. In the book, we see that God's absolute power over creation. God has power over angels, and God even has power over Satan. We see that Satan does nothing in the world except by the permission of God Almighty. He does nothing. Satan has no ability to do anything apart from the permission of God Almighty. And we also see, number two, that God's power in God has purposes in creation that go far beyond our purview. God has purposes in the creation that we don't even understand. Listen, I was reading back through Job again this week, and something really blessed me. I, I'd never seen it before. Job 38 and verse 12, or verse 26, God talks about watering a land where no one ever lives. No one ever lives. No one's ever seen it. It is beautiful flowers. It is, a, it is a beautiful piece of land that doesn't benefit humans at all. It reminded me of what C.S. Lewis said in his great work, Miracles. He says, when the early explorers came into America, they went into valleys where no humans had ever been before, and they saw new types of flowers and beauty and landscapes and plants. And C.S. Lewis said, he said, why did God put all of this beauty in a place that for thousands of years no one saw? No one ever even saw this with human eyes. And C.S. Lewis said, it only... Is, is probable to understand that God does something solely for himself. Not everything that exists, exists for humans. Not everything that exists, exists for our eyesight. See, this is the point of Job's suffering. The ultimate end of Job's suffering is that God uses suffering to glorify himself. And God wanted to bring glory to himself in front of Satan and the angels by using a man's faithful suffering. You not not like that, because I certainly don't like that when I'm suffering. But let me tell you, the only way you're going to live a rich, satisfying, happy life is to understand that perspective. You are not made for you. You are made for Him. And the only significance of your life is bringing God glory. It's it. It's it. There's no other significance in life apart from the glory that we bring God. You and all of the world exist for God's glory. And when we realize that, the joy and satisfaction that we've never known becomes ours because we are created to live that way. He's not at the center. You, you, or you are not at the center. He is at the center. I ended last year, this last year, 2017, with a message called the Copernican Revolution of the Soul where we no longer become the center, but God becomes the center. I'm ending this year in the same way. That we live for God's glory. That we exist for God's glory. 
So number one, his power is sovereign. Number two, his perspective is infinite. Your perspective is infinite, God. Your power is sovereign. Your perspective is infinite. The climax of God's argument comes in chapter 42, verse 3, when God says, look what he said. He said, who is this that dares question my judgment without my knowledge? Job, are you really questioning my judgment when you don't have my knowledge? Job, if you don't even understand the mystery behind natural phenomenon like storms and stars and constellations, are you really in a place to understand the eternal purposes of God that's eternal above all of those stars and storms? There's a problem introduced here that um, philosophers call the problem of evil. The problem of evil is not just raised in the book. It's been raised, it's actually been turned by a man named Epicurus. Epicurus in the 5th century BC labeled what we call the problem of evil. Now, this is repeated throughout all of history, the annals of history, and certainly in college classrooms today. You say, what is this problem of evil? Here it is. If God is all-loving, he would want to remove suffering. If God is all-powerful, he can remove suffering. The fact that suffering exists means God must not be all-loving, and he must not be all-powerful. And a God who is not all-loving and all-powerful is not God at all. So therefore, if suffering exists, it means God doesn't exist. That, of course, is what we call the problem of evil. That's been repeated through history. It's being repeated. It's the number one objection to the atheist, atheist and skeptic today, right? The problem of evil. As I've told you before, though, what happens in that premise is something very vital. Something's missing from that premise. Something extremely important. That syllogism creates and contains something very crucial that's missing. You know what that is? If God is all-loving and God is all-powerful, then it follows that God is also all-wise. If he's all-loving and he's all-powerful, he has to be all-wise. And if God's wisdom is as high above our wisdom as his power is above our power, then it should be rational conclusion that there are certain things about God and his purposes that will escape our immediate ability to comprehend them. See, the skeptic dismisses God's all-wisdom and says he's all-powerful and all-loving, but don't call him all-wise. See, we have to conclude then that the suffering and the wisdom and the challenges that we face comes from a God who knows and sees more than we actually see. This is the missing premise. Would you do a thought experiment with me? I've, I've, I've led you in this before, but let me lead it again. I want you to do a thought experiment with me of how high God's power is compared to your power. You ready? Even if you're in here today and you don't believe in God... If you don't believe in God, you come to church on this last weekend of the year. We're so glad that you're here, but listen to me just a minute. If there is a God, how much power would he have to have to create the universe? Let's just do a thought experiment. How much power would he have to have? Astronomers, last article I read, they, they state that the number of stars is now at about 3,000 billion trillion. 3,000 billion trillion. That's three with 24 zeros. There's about three with 24 zeros stars in the universe that we know. One math nerd a couple years ago came to me and said that number is septillion. Okay, awesome, septillion, whatever you want to call it. 3,000 billion trillion. Now, if you're like me, numbers like million, billion, trillion, or septillion tend to kind of sound all the same after a while. So I want to ask you a question. What were you doing one million seconds ago? One million seconds ago was 11 days ago. Did you know what you were doing last Wednesday? Now think about what you were doing last Wednesday. It's 11 days ago. Well, what about a billion seconds ago? Think about that. What were you doing a billion seconds ago? You remember what you were doing then? That was 31 years and eight months ago. Some of you, of course, can't remember because you didn't exist yet. Compact disc player was just being invented. 
Rambo was saving our world from destruction and the Jedi were returning for the first time. Billion seconds ago. How about a trillion seconds ago? Trillion. What's that? A couple hundred years ago? Trillion seconds ago was 29,672 B.C. The first Rocky movie had just come out. Listen, that's one trillion. There's 3,000 billion trillion stars in the universe. There's 3,000, 3,000, 3,000 billion trillion. Now think about the fact that there's 3,000 billion trillion stars, each one putting out a roughly the same amount of energy as a trillion atom bombs every second. Some are so big they defy description like Eta Carinae in our own Milky Way, which is 5 million times brighter than our sun. And these stars exist in an expanse that we simply cannot comprehend. The Hubble telescope is now sending back faint infrared images of galaxies that are some 14 billion light years away. You know what that is? If you got in a spaceship and went 186,926 miles per second, you would have to travel for 14 billion years and you would enter into that galaxy. And there are likely more beyond that. And all of those stars, all of those three 3,000 billion trillion stars in the expanse of the universe was created in a single moment with a single word from God. That's how powerful. Now compare that power to my power. I can't lift a mattress over my head without tearing my back up. <laughs> try, to, try to flip your mattress without the help of somebody. You see what I'm talking about. California king, you'll be hurt for weeks. A couple years ago, I worked out at the Rush. They, I was in the rowing machine. And they had this setting where you could click it and you'd go to wattage. I don't know why you would do that. I guess to humiliate people like me. But I got on there and I did as fast as I could. And I'm rowing. You know how much I rowed? 60 watts. I'm like, I'm powering a light bulb. I'm powering a light bulb. I'm powering a light bulb. And after two minutes later, my wife is reviving me with bath salts because I've passed out. You know, like, I mean, like, I can't row a light bulb for two minutes. And God breathed out 3,000 billion trillion scars in one single word. His power and his is sovereign and his perspective is infinite. It's beyond what you and I could ever really imagine. And if his wisdom is as high above mine as his power is above mine, then the rational conclusion is that there will be things in my life that are beyond my ability to ever understand. I will never be able to rationally comprehend. It's entirely possible as you're sitting in this room this morning that God has beautiful purposes that he's working out that you just can't see yet. Bart Ehrman He's at UNC Chapel Hill now, where a lot of atheists go. I think a lot of Christians go to Duke, but more atheists go to UNC. Um, he's, he's one of the greatest skeptics of our day now. And um, won't mention that we're number one in the nation right now, but uh, nonetheless. And Tennessee's number two, or number three, you know what I'm saying? It's, just, it's a great year. We, we, we Tennessee fans, we're basketball school now, okay? We're a basketball school. We're not a football school. We're a basketball school. Bart Ehrman lost his faith because of the presence of what he called purposeless evil. He said there's purposeless evil, but there's an assumption behind his claim of purposeless evil. He says that if there is a purpose, I would be wise enough to detect it. There's no such thing as purposeless evil then because you're not wise enough to understand all of evil. See, they're dismissing the wisdom of God. They're dismissing the character of God. I think it's rather arrogant to assume that with our limited knowledge, we would be able to perceive every purpose of an infinitely wise God. Like I told you, one of our core problems is that we don't think of God as God. We think of Him as someone who's slightly bigger than us and slightly smarter than us. 
But does that make any sense when we think about how God, how big God had to be to pull off creation? That he's just bigger, a little bit bigger than us and a slight smarter than us? See, I, the Lord gave me this image this week. I think in a modern America, we think of God as a big being with huge, powerful star creating muscles, but a little itty bitty, teeny tiny head with a little bitty brain. But he's not. He's just as infinite and wise as he is loving, just as powerful. Job, in response to this, look at Job says in verse 42, chapter 42, verse 3, he says, Surely I spoke of things I didn't understand, God. I'm sorry. I spoke of things too, too wonderful for me to know. In other words, I realize now how dumb and limited I was, God. Now that I see how big you are, I realize I had the wrong posture in my questions. Listen, church, God wants your questions. He has big, he, has, he is more than capable of dealing with your hard questions. Please understand this. He wants you to be honest with him. He wants you to come before him. He can more than handle your questions, but you need to have some sense of the magnitude and wisdom of God to let them determine the posture you approach him when you ask the questions. I'm not dis discouraging you asking hard questions. Ask him all you want. Just let his magnitude determine the posture you approach him with when you ask the questions. So number one, my power is sovereign. Number two, my, my purpose or my, my infinite or perspective is infinite. Number three, my purpose is guaranteed. God says, my purpose is guaranteed. One of the most encouraging things I think in the whole book of Job is that we see that God's power is sovereign and his perspective is infinite. You know what that means, church? Even Satan's attempts to attack God's people only further God's purposes. Even when Satan tries to attack God's people, God uses it to further his purpose. Think about it. All of Satan's attacks on Job yields for us a book that has provided encouragement to countless believers down through the centuries. Do you think that's what Satan had planned when he went and asked God for permission that day? Do you think his end goal was that he would be defeated by a book that would come out of a man that he would test? Do you think it was his end goal that God would show off his glory by allowing a man to faithfully suffer? No. The book of Job is a big old gotcha shoved right in Satan's face. I gotcha right into the face of Satan. Don't we see this all throughout scripture though? Satan's strategy to defeat the son of God only serves to provide salvation for the sons of men. And Satan's only strategy to defeat the sons of God only serves as a, as a magnifying board to save the more sons and daughters of men. This is how God uses suffering throughout all of history. This is what God's doing in your life and what God's doing in my life. We see it in the book of Acts. Every attempt by Satan to try to stomp out the church, did it lead to its demise? No, it only led to the expansion of the gospel. The best place we ever see this is the cross. The worst day, Satan killed the son of God. He hung him between heaven and hell. And yet in the worst day of human history, God was doing his best work. That's why we don't know whether to call it Bad Friday or Good Friday. It's Good Friday that my, saved, my soul was saved, but Bad Friday that the son of God was destroyed. He was killed on a cross. I'm here to tell you that every purpose of the enemy to try to bring about and stomp out God's purposes only serves to make the gospel advance in greater ways. This is the purpose. God says, my promise is guaranteed. And believer, God's doing the same thing with your struggles. If you think about it, just think about it. Be honest with me. You can already see a little bit of the good that's coming out of what God's allowed you to go through, can't you? Can't you? If you're honest with yourself, you can see a little bit of the good. I'm not saying you see it all, but you can see a little bit of the good. You're already getting a little bit of the good. You know what Job says? He says, if we can already look back two years and see a good purpose for some of the suffering in our lives, don't we think that when we are given infinite time and perspective, we'll see a reason for everything we went through? We'll see a reason for everything. See, sometimes what God's doing, he's doing in you. Can I give you a real quick synopsis? In scripture, I see three reasons why God allows people to suffer. When I look at the Old Testament, 
The number one reason is sometimes God lets us suffer in order to chastise us or correct us. Remember what he did with Jonah? Jonah went the wrong way, went to Tarshish instead of Nineveh. What did he do? He allowed him to go overboard and be swallowed by a fish in the belly of a well, right? And be revived, spit out on the shore. Why? Because he needed to discipline him. Those the Lord loves, he chastens. Hebrews 12 says he, he disciplines. The son learned obedience to his father through suffering. Jesus learned obedience through suffering chastising. Notice this. Here's the second time. Sometimes God allows us to suffer because He wants to work salvation in other people through our suffering. Who's this? Joseph. He suffered for 40 years of his life to bring salvation to the children of Israel. He got sold into slavery, went in the bottom of a pit, went to the bottom of a prison, went into the, the part of Pharaoh's court, and he ultimately brought salvation in the midst of a famine. And God will let you suffer to bring salvation to other men and women. Here's the third reason why God lets us suffer. He lets us suffer to purify our hearts and to make us love Him more. That's Job. That's what I feel like God does with me a lot. To make us love Him more. To purify and take out of us things that we think belong but don't really belong. And God's very faithful to turn up the temperature and He can be trusted with the thermostat of your life. And I know it's really, really hot. I know you think you can't take one more degree, but I would trust the thermostat into the hands of the one who gave His only Son for me. I can surely trust him with a thermostat. I can surely trust him with the temperature that he heats it up in my life, my family, my situation. See, suffering often is how God shapes you for himself. It's how God shapes you for himself. Martin Luther, the leader of the Protestant Reformation, he said, as soon as God chooses you, as soon as he chooses you, he lets the devil afflict you to turn you into a real doctor of the word. Look what, look what Martin Luther said. I credit the devil, the Pope, and all my other persecutors with my deep knowledge of the word through the devil's raging. They've turned me into a fairly good preacher, driving me into the gospel, into depths I never would have reached without the affliction of these individuals. I'd have never reached the depths of God without this affliction. That's what the gospel story is all about, church. Satan's strategy to defeat the Son of God only serves to provide salvation for the sons of men. And that's what he's doing in your suffering. That's what he's done in every person's suffering through history. And that's what he's going to continue to do in your suffering is provide salvation to others through your faithful suffering. His power is sovereign. His perspective is infinite. His promise is enduring, assuring. Number four, his promise is everlasting. His promise is everlasting. Look at my favorite verse in the whole book. Job 19.25 is my favorite verse. He said, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. I love that. I know that my Redeemer lives and in the end he will stand on the earth. You know what that means? A few things about this verse. Leave it up there just a minute. My Redeemer lives and that in the end. Everybody say in the end. That means in eternity. The last scene of the book of Job is God restoring to Job sevenfold all that he lost. Seven is a picture of eternity because seven is the picture of, of, of what we call completion or perfection in Scripture. So in this scene in Job 42, we get a glimpse of what eternity will be like when God restores to us all that we have lost and gives us perfect joy. I have held on to this verse in times of struggle like you have. Psalm 16, verse 11. In your presence is the fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You know what it means to have the fullness of joy? That means there's joy that could not get any stronger. You can't have any more stronger joy than the fullness of joy in his presence. You know what pleasures forevermore are? That means joy and pleasures that couldn't last any longer. That means God promises to give you joy that can't be any stronger and to give you pleasure that can't last any longer. That's when you get in his presence and he makes all things right. You think just for a minute, how long is eternity? 
How long is eternity? The whole life you've lived so far will be like the first few seconds of a never-ending day. The first few seconds of a day that will never end. Your life is just a brief ellipsis compared to the expanse of eternity. And that means that compared to eternity, what we go through on earth and life is nothing. That's why Mother Teresa said compared to eternity, the worst things on earth are like a bad night in a cheap hotel. The worst suffering on earth is like a bad night in a cheap hotel, Mother Teresa said. You ever stayed in a bad hotel? Ever stayed in a cheap hotel? We did on the way to Oklahoma two years ago. Thought you'd cut corners, you know, stay in a hotel. We went in. Somebody flushed the toilet above us. The water came down through our ceiling, you know, dripped on our nose. You don't get much sleep there, right? Scorpions. The floor looks like it's, I mean, there's no way I'm taking my shoes off in that place, right? And it wasn't funny then, but you know what? When I tell it now, it's very funny. When you get into eternity, it's not funny now, the suffering you're going through, but in then, it's one bad night at a cheap hotel. You'll laugh your brains out at how you went through this suffering that seems so immense and so powerful and so grandiose. Yet compared to eternity, it's one bad night in a cheap hotel. It's one bad night in a cheap hotel. That's why C.S. Lewis said, if you look at this world as a place to find happiness, you'll be miserable and confused. Do not go into 2019 trying to look for happiness. If you look at it as a training ground for the next life, you'll find complete life purpose and joy. This is not a playground, it's a battleground. Satan is after the souls of man. He's after friends and neighbors. He's after the people around us. He's ultimately after to destroy us. Number five, my presence is pledged. Come on, Maddie. My presence is pledged. Job 19.25, he says very clearly, in a beautiful, incredible way. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. I wonder what Job was thinking when he wrote that. I know that my Redeemer lives and in the end he will stand on the earth. Because see, we see that verse even more than he did. We saw our Redeemer come and stand on earth with us on Golgotha. (laughs) See, see, Job didn't see the Redeemer come and stand, but we have seen the Redeemer come and stand at Golgotha. We've seen the Redeemer walk outside Jerusalem and be hung between heaven and hell. Why was he here? He was here, why? Because he came to take our punishment and our place so that we would never be separated from God again. Oh, yeah, 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 I'm wounded sometimes, but he was wounded for me so that I could be eternally healed. Oh, yeah, yeah, sometimes I feel abandoned, but he became abandoned for me so that I could be eternally embraced and hugged to the Father. You know what that means, church? That means that God's mercy is ever present for me and I never have to worry about what he's doing in my life. I never have to worry about what I'm facing. He stands by my side because he stood in my place. Because on Golgotha, he stood in my place. He now forever stands by my side. He never leaves me nor forsakes me. I love the words of J.W. Tozer here. Love him. He said, with the goodness of God to desire our highest welfare, the wisdom of God to plan it, and the power of God to achieve it, what do we lack? Look at me, believer. The goodness of God desires your highest welfare. The wisdom of God planned it for you, and the power of God will achieve it for you. What do you lack? What do you lack? I may not know exactly what God's doing in my pain, but the cross shows me what my suffering can't mean. You know what my suffering can't mean? It can't mean that God has forsaken me and it can't mean that God's lost control of my life. 
Because the Bible says, what did the cross say? Think about the cross. It's God's love. God died for us when I was an enemy. If God died for me when I was an enemy, you know what that shows me? He's committed to me. And if he died for me when I was his enemy, is he not going to stand with me when I'm his son? If he died for me when I hated him, will he not stand next to me when I love him? If he died for me when I was an enemy of him, would he not stay next to me for all eternity when I'm now his son or daughter? You know what else the cross tells me? It tells me something about God's control. Because if there was ever a time when it looked like God was absent or God had lost control, it looked like the cross. But God, in the time that our human eyes perceived out of control, God was doing his greatest work. God did his greatest work in Jesus' life when Jesus felt less in control and he will do his greatest work in your life when you feel most out of control. Most out of control. Man, that is rhema. That is fresh bread out of the oven that God will do his greatest work when we are least in control. And that's what he's doing right now through your pain. It may feel like you're in a dark night of the soul. I'm not gonna say you're not gonna go through a dark night of the soul. You're gonna go through, you may go through many of them, but let me tell you in the dark night of the soul, God's working in the power of the resurrection. He's working the power of the resurrection through you. Your redeemer came and stood in your place. He entered into your pain for you. He took death for you. And now he stands victoriously beside you, standing in the resurrection, promising one day that you'll stand Stand with him for eternity. So in your praying, praying, you can have his presence. That's what God showed. That's what that's what God showed Job. He said, My power is sovereign, my perspective is infinite, my purpose is guaranteed, my promise is everlasting, and my presence is pledged. This is the truth we learn. I love the words of the British journalist Malcolm Mulgaridge. It, it's so hit with me. See if it hits with you. He said, contrary to what I would have expected, I look back now on experiences that at the time seemed especially devastating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything of value I've learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction, not comfort and ease. Job wanted answers. God gave him presence. I keep asking God for clarity. He keeps asking for my trust. He wins. I lose. So it's okay to search. It's okay to seek. But once Job got the presence of God, you know what he did? He was completely satisfied. Don't don't miss the order of Job. Job was not satisfied after he got restored. Go read the text. He was satisfied when God showed up and showed him who he was. Before he was restored, he was satisfied. In fact, when God finally appeared, last verse, Job 42, (laughs) Job was so busy repenting that he didn't have time for any further questions. Meredith read it. Verse six, you can't ask God questions when he finally shows up. I despise myself and I repented in dust and ashes. I can't ask questions when I'm repenting. I can't ask questions when I'm laying before God Almighty because see, here it is. You ready? When you see the beauty of Christ, you stop asking the why and start trusting the who. You start trusting the who. God, I believe in you. I trust in you. 
Some of you right now, you think you need explanation so you can understand. You're like Job's friend saying, God, if you just explain it to me, I'd be satisfied. No, did you know the explanation doesn't lead to faith? Revelation leads to faith. (laughs) You think you need explanation, but it's actually revelation that leads you to faith. Explanation leads you further away from faith sometimes. I know you want all the answers, but the answers don't lead you to more faith. Revelation leads you to more faith. It's when God shows you who he is in the midst of it, that he's a God who's all powerful, that he is more than able to sustain you through all the mess that you're in, that he is faithful and loving enough, and he promises just to do that. A revelation of God, not an explanation of God, helps us in suffering. And it's a revelation of God, not an explanation of suffering that God gives to us when we're suffering. And it's that experience that countless suffering believers through the history of our churches have experienced. That's why Corey Ten Boom, the great Corey Ten Boom, I love to read her. She was suffered in a Nazi prison camp and she said, no matter how deep our darkness, God is deeper still. No matter how deep it gets, God's still deeper. He's a layer underneath you. <laughs> I heard a few weeks ago the story of Steve Saint. You remember Steve Saint? Have you ever read the book, uh, End of the Spear? You missionary lovers in the room? Probably the greatest, most tragic missionary event that's happened in modern history was by Steve Saint's dad. You remember the five individuals that were murdered on the banks of the beach of, of uh, Ecuador in the 1950s? Remember they went into the Aka Indian tribe? Steve Saint is the son of his father who was the first one murdered that day. And those five individuals went and they gave up their lives after they graduated college and said, we're going to win the people in Ecuador. They went to the Akas and they tried to establish contact with them and they started getting some success. And then on thing on January 8, 1957, they were there on the beaches of Ecuador uh, and, and, and all of a sudden these Aka Indians came out and destroyed and killed them all. It's the worst tragedy. Well, later, Steve, who was the son of his dad who was killed first, became a part of a group. This is one of the most remarkable reconciliation stories I've ever heard in my life. And I've known the part of the story, but I didn't know this part of the story. And Steve Saint went back to that same people. You know what he ended up doing? He ended up making friends with all of the people that were there in that Indian tribe. And he befriended the man who killed his dad. His name was Minkaya, M-I-N-C-A-Y-A, Y-E. And he won Minkaya to the Lord. He was able to baptize the man who killed his father. And you know what he did after that? And one of the most grace, crazy and remarkable grace stories I've ever heard. He baptized the man who killed his father. He got him out of the water and he adopted that Minkaye as the grandfather that his kids couldn't have because he's the one who killed the grandfather. And Minkaye became the grandfather of the kids who actually murdered him 50 years ago. And for the last 20 years, Minkaye and Steve Saint have traveled the world. They put these pictures up. They've traveled the world and shared the story of God's remarkable grace. And now Steve Saint has gone and won a whole Indian tribe of people to Jesus Christ. But I read his book this few weeks ago and there was a part in his chapter that got me. It wrecked me, man. It wrecked me. It wrecked me. It wrecked me. Woo, it wrecked me. He said, why is it that we want every chapter to be good in our lives when God promises only that in the last chapter he'll make all the other chapters make sense? He won't promise every good chapter. You won't have all good endings. But let me tell you something. The last chapter will make every other chapter make sense. The last chapter will make every other thing you experience make sense. He said, why should then we expect for every chapter to end the way we want it to end? Your chapter may be Job 4. 
Your chapter may be Job 36. Your chapter may be Job 38, but I'm telling you, your Redeemer lives. Your Redeemer lives. You can stand and see that your Redeemer has stood on the earth. That's the message of Job. Can you say it with him today? Your power is sovereign. Your perspective is infinite. Your purpose is guaranteed. Your promise is everlasting and your presence is pledged. So riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Though my inheritance now and always, thou and thou only first in my heart High King of heaven, my treasure thou art, for I know my Redeemer lives. I can face tomorrow because he lives. I can face tomorrow. Your Redeemer lives. Would you bow your head with me all across this room? Is this where you are? Is this where you are? As you end 2018, he will stand with you. He will stand with you in 2019. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.